Hello, everybody, and welcome back to HOA It's a True Story. Today, we are talking about high-rise litigation with Roger Grant. Roger is a partner at Fenton Grant Mayfield Canada and Lit LLC law firm. And Roger, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Reagan. So how long have you been representing HOAs in different types of litigation? I've been an attorney for 30 years, and I've been representing HOAs for about 26 of those years. I started out, uh, I, I was a former commercial pilot. I took my training at Purdue University Flight School, and I really wanted to do air crash litigation. I started out doing that. The air crash cases were few and far between. And I had a construction background, and I started getting involved in a lot of construction defect cases. And that just took off. I started doing that full-time about 26 years ago. Yeah, I don't see commercial pilot as crossing over very well into litigation for construction. But uh, that's really fascinating that that's where you initially started. But how did your firm then evolve into becoming one of the leading high-rise litigating firms we got our first high-rise case approximately 15 years ago, and it was a big case and a big challenge. We all really liked handling that case. So we just started taking on as many high-rise cases as we could. We've now litigated 52 high-rise claims throughout California and Nevada, and we learn a lot from every case. Uh, and I handle the high-rise cases in the Bay Area for our firm pretty much exclusively on high-rise cases now. So very interesting, and they, they have some unique challenges. So 52 cases is really substantial in the greater scheme of how many cases you've litigated. But in high-rise, when you think about, let's just take San Francisco, for example, I don't even think there's 52 high-rises in the city, are there? There are not. And we've handled a lot of high-rise cases in Los Angeles, Peripheral areas, San Diego. Yeah. Las Vegas. Oh, yes. Las Vegas. We've worked on a few of those together. So how are high-rise cases a little bit different typically from your, your regular condo style? What's the significant difference when you're going into a litigation? There are a few very significant differences. One of them is the testing costs are substantially higher on a high-rise it's not uncommon to spend millions of dollars testing on a large high-rise. So some of our cases, the costs will exceed two, three, four million dollars. Just in the preparation of discovery. Just in investigation, preparing reports, and getting ready, getting the case ready for trial. So would you say that doing the discovery phase is substantially different than a normal DT destructive testing? type of uh, effort? It's substantially different from regular condo case. We call them sticks and bricks condos Yeah, because of the access. Access is very difficult because a lot of the high rises are right in the middle of the city. There's no room for anything, as you know, having worked on them. Yes. Also, the windows are a big factor in high rise cases and to investigate and test the windows, of course, requires a swing stage. Now, now a lot of people may not know what a swing stage is. A swing stage is a a device that's lowered from the roof. You've probably seen window washers on swing stage. Okay. And you can get about three or four people on it. So they will will lower that swing stage from 
the roof of the building. And the way we test windows or inspect windows is we'll do one vertical stack at a time. So we'll go all the way down that stack of windows, testing and inspecting. You do like all 24 floors at one time on one single stack, or you'll just do? We'll typically do all the windows in the stack. And that really limits you as far as how many you can get done in a day. Usually you can do one or two stacks per day. You're limited in only having a few experts on the swing stage. And it's, it can be very time-consuming and very costly. So that's one of the major differences in discovery. We talked a little bit about the windows. What about the roofs? Is it a different scenario trying to test roofing? The roofs on high-rises high typically don't have a real big footprint. They're relatively small. So the, the roofing test isn't that complicated compared to a condo project that may have 100 different buildings and 100 roofs. It seems like a lot of the problems that we've been identifying as we've been working on high-rises this past couple of years seem to be in the plumbing. Why does plumbing seem to be such an issue in these high-rise cases? There are a number of reasons why plumbing is problematic. The hot water delivery system for a high-rise is a lot different than your typical condo uh, where you have a hot water heater in every unit. So these high-rises have boilers. They have a, a massive hot water recirculation system that's difficult to maintain and difficult to manage. And if it's not designed properly, it's not going to work. The worst thing ever is when people who paid millions of dollars for their condo don't have hot water. Or if the line bursts and now it's running water down multiple right. floors. If there's a water break, it's going to go down 10 floors sometimes damage everything in its path. Another thing we see uh, in the high-rises in the city, a lot of plumbing corrosion. Chloramine in the water really affects all these valves, and they start to corrode after a few years. That's really short amount of time, just a few years. It is. Part of the problem is that the components are some of the cheapest components available. There are plumbing components that are not as susceptible to corrosion, but unfortunately those aren't used very often. No, they're more expensive, right? Yeah. I think uh, I remember one time when we were working on a high-rise project together, if I recall correctly, the person on the ninth floor, it took them like 20 minutes to get hot water. I remember that project. They just had to keep running the water for a half an hour before they could take a shower. And a massive water billage. Oh, yeah. I think it was the same poor guy's unit that took so long to get the water that had the maintenance where when they would flush the lines, it would all go through his shower. Yes, uh, that was an unhappy owner. Very unhappy. So it sounds to me like it's also pretty dangerous at a different level for testing and getting your discovery information than a sticks and bricks, as you put it, kind of condo. Would that be an accurate assumption? Absolutely. Anytime you get in a swing stage, your life is potentially in danger. And if you drop something from that swing stage, it could hit someone down below and, and right. kill them. There aren't very many swing stage accidents, and the swing stages have to be certified before you can use them. But if an accident does occur, it can cause serious injury or death. So we have to be very, very careful. Yeah, I know we've put a lot of our guys through swing stage training and certification, and it also limits who can go up there and work. So you have to have the A team, and right. you're going to pay more for that 
kind of guy that's certified to be up there than just uh, a regular carpenter or laborer that might be working on a project. I, um, tr- I try to stay off of them. I'm sure. I, I think I was on one one time. And that was enough. And I'm not afraid of heights. If you have a fear of heights, you're definitely out for that. Do, because it seems to be such a specialized area working in these high rises, do you have a special set of experts for these types of systems? Or is just a plumber's a plumber and they can do it on a high rise as well as a, a stick and brick project? We do have a special uh, group of high rise experts. The experts we use are some of the best high rise experts in the country. Let me start with windows. The windows on a high rise are different from any other building. Most often we see a curtain wall, which is basically a wall of windows that hang from the building. And that's a very specialized product that many experts don't understand. That's really hard to detect water leaks on a curtain wall type of window wall, right? It is. There have been so many leaks that are very difficult. Another thing we're seeing a lot of is corrosion of windows where the windows get spots on them Hmm. or water getting in between the panes. We've had some laminated windows where the uh, lamination is delaminating and causing streaks in the windows. What about the one that we worked on that was, they were popping out and falling to the ground below? Yes, that has happened on a few high rises. It's pretty rare. It was like Um, a sun, they called it a sunburst or something within the glass. And a new uh, issue that we've been finding on some of the high-rises that involve Chinese-made glass is a nickel sulfide inclusion, where there's a tiny speck of nickel sulfide in the window, smaller than the, the head of a pin. Oh, my god! And that causes these tempered glass windows to shatter. Very difficult to inspect and detect that nickel sulfide. We are perfecting a process where that can be found in a window before it breaks. That's unbelievable. And they're coming up with a way to detect it. So let's say first we had the Chinese drywall, which was a problem because it had issues in there that corroded everything inside that was electronic. And now you have this new problem. I can't imagine being on a 43rd floor and having your window shatter. Well, it's tempered glass, so it doesn't go falling to the street. We don't see that problem in, in glass manufactured in the United States at all. I think they've perfected the process. But uh, the Chinese glass, it is a big problem. And it can continue breaking for up to 10, 15 years. We have noticed a real uptick in some of these high-rise problems and cases. Do you think this is one of the causes for this sudden surge in litigating high-rise cases? A lot of things cause upticks in construction defect. Um, whenever there's a building boom, there's pressure on everybody to build as quickly as possible, get it done fast. And that often results in a lack of supervision and an inferior product. Another thing is price-driven. I see a lot of subcontractor contracts that are design-build, where the subcontractor not only has to build components, but gets to select what components are used. So for example, in plumbing, if a subcontractor has a design-build contract, they're going to pick cheap components to increase their profits. And we see a lot of plumbing components that are just inferior or are not able to handle the chloramine in the water, and they fail prematurely. I think those are the two biggest problems. 
Well, with the labor shortage that we've been experiencing since about 2016, 2017, it really hit us. I can imagine that the lack of qualified supervision, especially in high-rise projects, is really limiting to having the right person on the project. My husband actually came from building high-rises, and I know that his company, even back in the day, struggled finding people that could supervise and manage those types of construction projects. So I'm sure that even now with the labor shortage, it's probably more pronounced that the skill sets are probably not as available as maybe the developers and the general contractors would like to have. That's very true. And we've also seen some new products used in high-rises that simply didn't work. For example, a a parking garage under high-rise is often four or five levels underground. And for a while, some of the contractors were using a concrete additive that was supposed to waterproof the concrete. And they did that instead of the standard waterproofing (laughs) around the perimeter. And it didn't work. And water's pouring into the garage. So now you have four, five, six million dollar repair that needs to be done where you have to inject ports into the garage, spray in foam insulation to form a a seal around the barrier. So that product was a fail. Who usually comes up with the solution? The expert or? Our experts, as they investigate the problems, uh, they will design a repair to fix them. And then we, then we send it to a cost estimator to put a cost on that repair. And then later, companies like yours come in and, and do the repair. What about the product EFIS? That's had a lot of problems over the years, as yeah, you know. That was very popular uh, for a long time. It, it was. It's a one-step stucco exterior cladding that is a foam base. So it, I always thought of it as like a diaper system. And if you puncture the baby's diaper, right, then all that foam inside is going to start letting the water come out. Right. And it doesn't take much to penetrate stucco. It could be something as simple as a bicycle hook or plant hook on the balcony to the maintenance cart clipping the corners or something along that line. But have they kind of come up with solutions for the the large amount of EFIS problems they were having? I haven't seen any foolproof solutions to it in any type of stucco, whether it's EFIS or standard stucco application, is often installed incorrectly. And when that happens, it gets water behind it and and it's done. Well, let's talk about the really big one. Um, Let's talk about the most notorious high-rise case, uh, certainly in California, I think. But can you tell us what happened at Millennium Towers? I can. We took over as lead counsel for Millennium Tower Association about two years ago. And when that building was constructed, they did not pile it down into bedrock. Now, you said you took over counsel because they had gone already through two or three law firms, right? Two. And And so then you guys came in. And what what do you think you did different that the others couldn't perform? What we did differently was get all of the parties to look toward finding a solution rather than just going to war. And the mediation team helped us a great deal with that. We had a five-star mediation team. And once everybody got on the same page of trying to find a solution to the problem, there was cooperation with all the attorneys. We had 170 attorneys in the case, I believe, and hundreds of parties. For people who don't know the details of that case, the 
power was not piled to bedrock. So it started to sink. And to make matters worse, they began building the transit center in downtown San Francisco right next to it. So they're digging a hole 70, 80 feet deep. They're dewatering, pulling all the water out of the ground. And that caused the tower to sink more. And then it started to tilt. So, so we, we, had, we had our own leaning tower of San Francisco? Yes. And contrary to what people see, you can't look at it and see it leaning. But it sank about 17 inches. Well, that's substantial. So we worked with the experts. We designed a repair, got the case resolved. And that repair is actually going to start next month. That's fantastic. It was a record settlement, I understand. Yes. I think it's the largest residential construction defects settlement U.S. history, approximately $160 million to the association. That is pretty amazing. Uh, And it's pretty dramatic, too. That's a rather dramatic construction defect issue. We've worked on projects where they were sinking into the mud of the bay or this or that, and you have to jack them up and reestablish. And that's one thing to take a three- or four-story building, condo building, and re-jack it up and recreate the footings. How many floors was the Millennium? I believe it's uh, over 50. Yeah, so trying to lift a 50-story building out and get it to bedrock, that's no easy feat, and I'm sure the engineering on that was well Well, thought out. The repair that's going to be implemented involves driving piles around the perimeter of the building, and then they're going to anchor the mat of the building to those rods or piles that are going all the way down to bedrock, 280 feet. So the building will be anchored around the perimeter. So they wouldn't have been able to go straight through and just put in new footings to bedrock because you have the post-tension slab, right? Right. We explored that possibility of driving piles through the mat, but there's too many things inside that mat, electrical, steel. And the experts were also concerned that that procedure would impact the earthquake safety of the building. So they came up with a perimeter pile upgrade plan, which we think is going to be very effective. Now, there are several studies that the Japanese have done on high-rise for earthquake-proofing them, where they put them on rollers so that they slide back and forth rather than sway. Have you seen any cases like that where they've used that type of technology in the construction of the building? I have not seen that technology used here in the city. I think they've done it in Southern California and Los Angeles, but I wondered if you'd seen any up here. A lot of these high-rise obviously are in urban areas, and it makes it much more complicated to get in, set up workstations, staging areas for the construction to take place. Are they just closing everything down around the Millennium to rebuild the transit center and all of these types of places? Do they have to shut it down? Well, the work's going to take place on what used to be two of the busiest streets in the city, Fremont and Mission. Fortunately, right now during the COVID pandemic, there's not much traffic there. Uh, Very few people on the sidewalks, very few people on the streets. So this is probably an ideal time to start the project. But those sidewalks are going to be closed and there's probably going to be a lane of traffic closed off for at least a year in that area. Yeah, I imagine the virus being here is really helping that kind of congested construction When you're driving on the freeways, you still see a lot of construction trucks out there. Not so many commuters, but it works pretty well. So tell me, you know, the name of the podcast is HOA. It's a true story. 
So, and I know, I know you have a lot of good stories because you've actually created entire presentations out of them, but tell me one of your favorite true stories. Well, I was thinking about which story to tell, and a lot of my high-rise stories are sad because they involve deaths or suicides, so I wasn't going to tell one of those. But I think the one I'm going to tell, I learned an important lesson from. There was a high-rise in San Jose where a title company was the tenant, and this was probably 25 years ago when everybody still had paper records. And the title company had hundreds of thousands of paper files, which they stored in the basement. And a big eight-inch water main coming into the building broke. And you know, as you know, water breaks always happen in the middle of the night or on weekends. Yeah. So this one was on a Sunday, and water poured into the basement of that building until it was about seven foot deep. All of their paper files, which at the time you weren't. Nothing was scanned into the computer. We didn't have that back then. So all of these paper files were floating in the basement when I got there. And what I learned from that is never store your important papers in the basement. basement. (laughs) Uh, But we were able to recover a huge business loss for that company and get the pipe fixed. Were they able to recover any other files or were they all pretty much toast? It took so much work. And, and it's hard to even fathom that today that young people can't imagine just using paper and not having it backed up on a computer. But, I know, right? Uh, it was the biggest mess ever. Well, I want to thank you for coming and speaking to us today on High Rise Litigation. And if any of you have questions for Roger that you'd like to find out more information Please feel free to reach out to us at GB Group at our website or at inquiry at gbgroupinc.com. So thank you again, Roger, and I look forward to having you on the show again. Thank you, Reagan. My pleasure.